All right, welcome to Cornerstone, everyone who is here on site, and also welcome to those of you who are watching online or listening to our podcast. At Cornerstone, we exist to inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, believing that following Jesus makes life better, makes you better at life, and brings glory to God in the process. Right now, we are meeting Sunday mornings, 11 a.m. here at United Baptist, but I'll ask everybody to be praying because... I'm already looking for and thinking about when our next, when, when and where our next location will be. Uh, it would be nice to have a little bit more space. It would be nice to have air conditioning over the summers, and it would be nice to, uh, yeah, it would be nice. So <laughs> you can be praying uh, about that so for our on-site location. Uh, and also, a week from today, you will be able to watch this on demand, and a week from today, You'll be watching it online if you're a part of our online congregation. If you're new to Cornerstone, then I would encourage you to let us know who you are. You can text the word NEW to 603-225-2550, our church number, and that will allow us to welcome you personally and also stay in touch with you. So today we are uh, continuing our series, Permission to Be Real, where we have been working through the book of Psalms. Now, last week... If you were here, we talked about the cursing psalms, the imprecatory psalms that uh, are sometimes some of the most hard, some of the most difficult psalms to interpret and understand. Well, we're going to flip that today, and we're going to talk about uh, a different theme, the kind of the flip side of that, what it means to be blessed, because a lot of the psalms talk about this idea of what it means to be blessed. So think about what, when you think about what it means to be blessed, what are the things that come to your mind? You know, a lot of times people think having wealth is a blessing. Uh, and definitely there are things that you can do with money that you can't do if you do not have money. Uh, obviously, health is a huge blessing. Uh, as I had an injury, uh, over the course of the earlier part of this year, it made me really appreciate my health and really have a lot of compassion for people who have to deal with chronic pain. There is no other wealth like your health. So those are just a couple of things that we think of. Well, what are the components? What does it mean to have a blessed life? And then how do you get to a point where you have a blessed life. What are the components? What are the ingredients for? What are the things that lead to a blessed life? The Psalms have a lot to say about that. In fact, it is a major theme throughout the entirety of the book of Psalms, and it also is a primary theme of the introductory Psalms. I don't know if you recognize this, but the Psalms start out with two introductory psalms. Now, I didn't start with those because as we started this series, I had actually just taught on Psalm 1, but we'll revisit it just a little bit to kind of see how it fits with this theme. And uh, I'll just show you and point out specifically where you see this. So in Psalm 1, it starts out with this word, blessed. And it says, blessed is the one, and that dot, dot, dot is the rest of verse 1, and that talks about what, what not to do if you want to be blessed. Or blessed are the people who do not, and it lists a couple of things. But then it flips in verse 2 and says, 
whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's talk about what law means. Law is the word for Torah or teaching or instruction. Instruction is actually my favorite word to use for this Hebrew word because uh, law tends to have some negative associations. Uh, Torah, a lot of people don't know exactly what that means, but instruction or teaching, I mean, that's helpful. That's good. We, we want instruction. And so I like the positive connotation of that. And it says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law or the instruction of the Lord. And that reminds me, remember, I've been pointing out over the course of this series in the Psalms, a lot of the paradigm pillars that we talked about in the previous series. Well, this is one from the Bible Project, their paradigm pillar number five, the way they put it, is that the Bible reveals God's wisdom and invites us into a journey of character transformation. And the way that I shortened that and kind of focused it was this, that the Bible is wisdom literature, which means that it provides the information that we need in order to flourish. Human flourishing is the goal. To be blessed is to flourish, and that's what the law or the instruction does for us. So blessed is the one who, uh, what do we say again? whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And then it goes on to say in the second part of that uh, line, and he who meditates on, and who meditates on his law day and night. And you remember in our paradigm, pillar number four was about meditation. And we said, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. You just turn the same things over and over again in your mind. Think about their implications. Think about what could happen. Meditation is the same kind of thing. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. So the whole book of Psalms starts out with the affirmation that what it, uh, if you want to be blessed, you delight in God's law and you meditate on it. You think about it. You turn it over and over again in your mind day and night. Then in Psalm 2, it's all about the king, the, the anointed king who leads God's people. And at the end, the way that that psalm ends up is with this statement, also about blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I like the way the message translation puts it. I think it's something like uh, God, uh, God is there for people who run to him. You know, that's what it means to take refuge. You're in danger, and where do you run? Where do you, where do you go? We were just talking about thunderstorms. You know, if you, if you see the lightning, you hear the thunder, you run inside, you take refuge. Well, when thunder, when the storms of life come your way, running to God's king is a way of blessing. So we see here, again, back to the paradigm, the Bible is the story of God setting things right through his son. So we see that the Bible is there, that we meditate on it. That's a part of the path to blessing. We see that it's the second psalm is pointing us towards God's anointed king and those who run to him for refuge. They are the ones who are blessed. Uh, that's because in part the Bible uh, uh, is 
the reason for that, in part, is that the Bible is the story of God setting things right through his son, which, of course, is a pillar of the, the paradigm itself, that the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. So, did you notice there are two things, two psalms to introdu- introduce the book of Psalms. There are two themes, God's word, his instruction, and God's son, his king. Those are the themes. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, I'm going to read those two psalms to you, and then I'm going to show you a video from the Bible Project that, o- that gives you an overview of the psalms. It will highlight some of these things that we'll be talking about, but I wanted to kind of point these out to you first so that when you're watching this short video, those are the things that will really jump out to you. So let's read it together. This is Psalm 1 and 2. I will be reading from the New Living Translation, which are the Bibles that you have on your tables as well, if you'd like to follow along or have it open for the rest of the message. Psalm chapter 1 and chapter 2. Verse 1, chapter 1. Oh, the joys, that's how they translate blessed. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. And now Psalm 2. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. Their rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclares the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge 
in him. Let's watch this video together. David as a model of 
the corresponding set of columns are pointing to point C. The David of the past has become an image of the Messianic King of the future, who will also call out to God and will be delivered and then given a kingdom and a nation. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for his glory. So here we go. The two themes from Psalm 1 and 2 are bound together by this poem. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic King. Then book two closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic King over all the nations. This poem is really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the Messianic King. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's faithful promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the one nation, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result and destruction and exile and the downfall of the one nation. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promises. Book four is designed to respond to this passage of Isaiah. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's grief with the prayer of Moses and does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, they're all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the nations. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring about his kingdom. This book also contains two larger one called the Hollow and the other called the Song of the Descent. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future Messianic King. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119, the longest poem in the book. And out of that poem, each one begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah Themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-point conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up the horn for his people. Now, the horn here is a metaphor of a bold horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song, for Samuel chapter 2, but also to earlier psalms horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory in the end. A fitting conclusion to the theme of the Hebrew story. Now here's one more thing that we are likely to miss if we don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of grief in the psalms, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in the world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. 
From the overview, you will see that as we talk about blessing, that there's a particular theme that is repeated throughout the entirety of the book of Psalms, and that's what we're focusing on today. If you're taking notes, the bottom line is this. And evidently, I need help. There we go. Okay. All right. Are you sure you don't want to watch it again? Uh, Okay, here we go. Meditation on God's word and surrender to God's son, his anointed king, are the twin pillars of a blessed life. Meditating on God's word, surrendering to God's son. So I'm going to challenge you to do that more, to do something to integrate God's word and God's son in your life more. I'm assuming if you're here, if you're watching, if you're listening, that you're already moving in that direction I want you to have a blessed life. I want you to do it more. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So meditation on God's word and surrender to God's son are twin pillars of a blessed life. And what I'm going to do today is rather than kind of going through these particular passages like I usually do, I'm actually going to model for you what this calls for. Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. So as I have been studying through and preaching in the Psalms, there are certain themes that have stood out to me, things that I have been learning along the way as I think about it and meditate on it. Some of them I had an idea of at the beginning of the study. Some of them kind of developed over time. But that's what I'm going to use as the main points in today's message. These are meditations as I think through and think about the implications of what we've been looking at. Here are the kinds of things that I think of, and I'll walk you through how they apply to our lives. So as we meditate on the Psalms, the the whole idea that started this series was this, that it's okay to be authentic and real. It's okay to be authentic and real. Now, you might say, well, duh, (laughs) you know, we're supposed to be honest, we're supposed to be authentic, but as we've talked about many times over the course of this series, in church, where you would expect that to be the case and the expectation, sometimes we put pressure on ourselves or feel pressure from others to pretend like we've got it together 
to pretend like things aren't bothering us, to pretend like we don't have questions, to pretend like everything is okay when sometimes it clearly is not. When we see the psalmist being honest about what they are going through, and I don't know if you picked that up from the video, but what he was saying was while the psalms were composed over a long period of time, they were compiled, arranged, and unified into the psalms after the exile. What does that mean? Think about the beginning of the nation of Israel in the glory days where everyone was together and they were doing well. It was David and Solomon. But shortly after that, the kingdom split and there are books in the Bible about how bad all of the kings were from that point on. <clears throat> the promise of a good David-like Messiah anointed king was always being raised and always being disappointed. And so after a long period of time, the enemy countries around them came in and destroyed first the northern kingdom, then the, the southern kingdom, and the people were taken off into exile. They were devastated. The temple, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which had been the center of their religious, cultural, and national identity was destroyed. And all the promises that they had been made, they couldn't help but wonder if they were still good. And so they collect these psalms and they are meditating on them and they are writing some probably during this time, expressing their disappointment, their sorrow over what has happened to their nation and their people. And so that's in part why you have so many laments as a part of the Psalms because they are lamenting what has happened to their nation. And again, I think that I take encouragement from the fact that those are included in the scriptures and some of them are very raw, some of them are, are very difficult to read but I take encouragement from that, that it's okay to be authentic and to be real. We see this in the Proverbs where uh, properly understood, this verse talks about this. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. What's the context for this proverb? It's going to someone's house for a banquet and they say, eat and drink. You know, just make yourself at home, fill yourself up. But they don't really mean it. They don't really have a generous spirit within. It says, but his heart is not with you. And it's pointing out that it doesn't matter what you say, it's what you are thinking and feeling on the inside that is actually truly what you are thinking and feeling. We looked at this quote from another commentator on the Psalms talking about how it's bold what we see in the Psalms and the, just the fact that it's in there insists that such, such experiences of disorder, and we talked about how some things are disorder, some things are reorientation, some things are, are uh, you see all of these different things expressed in the Psalms. They're a proper subject for discourse with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded, nothing inappropriate. Think about it. The Lord already knows what you're really thinking and feeling, so there's no reason to hide it from him. He already knows. 
Now, what's the benefit of doing that? I see the benefit of this in a very famous passage from the first letter of John. Uh, the less famous of the verses is the one right before it. In 1 John 1, 8, it says, If we claim we have no sin, if we claim we aren't frustrated, if we claim we're not angry, if we claim we don't want revenge, if we all these things that the psalmists are feeling sometimes, if we claim that that's not the case, we are only fooling ourselves and not living the truth. And he goes on to say, and this is the hopeful part, but if we confess our sins to him, to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all wickedness. So do you see the pattern there? You have, you have unpleasant, unhealthy, unrighteous thoughts or feelings. You can stuff them down and pretend that they don't exist, or you can be honest before God. You can confess them and then see what that leads to. When we confess, we are forgiven, and then he cleanses us. And that's actually the pattern that we see very often in the Psalms. People are honest about where they are, and in the process of talking that out and being honest before God, he heals them. So, meditation on God's word, surrender to God's son, are the twin pillars of a blessed life. So, we don't deny either sorrow or hope, sorrow or hope. Remember this part from the video where he's talking about how there are a lot of lament psalms and a lot of praise psalms. And in fact, some most lament psalms begin with an affirmation of praise, walk you through the journey that the psalmist has been on, and then end up in a good place again, a place of praise and thankfulness so i see this pattern throughout the scriptures as i reflect on it in paul's book to the church at rome as he's giving bullet point instructions at the end of the book he includes this one rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep that we we should have empathy with people because sometimes again in church world we put pressure on ourselves or on others not to feel the way we feel to sanitize, to hide what we are feeling. What he's saying here is, look, there are going to be people who are rejoicing. Rejoice with them. There are going to be people who are mourning. Then we should mourn with them as well. You don't need to deny either side. I see the same balance of hopefulness and of sorrow in Jesus as well. As we meditate on his life. When he came to the city of Jerusalem, this is what he said. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now he's going to lament. This is a lament that Jesus expressed. Murderer of prophets, killer of the ones who brought you God's news. How often I've ached to embrace your children. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you wouldn't let me. What's he doing? He's expressing his sorrow, his frustration, his, his agony that he wants to see his people thrive and they've been unwilling to embrace him so that they could. And so he says, and now you're so desolate, nothing but a ghost town. What is there left to say? And then he shifts into hope. Only this, 
I'm out of here soon. The next time, this is obviously the message translation, uh, the next time you see me, you'll say, oh, God has blessed him. He's come bringing God's rule. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He looks out and he sees the sorry state of Jerusalem. He sees the result of their sin and rebellion and he aches for them. But there's also hope because he knows there's going to be a time where he will return not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And they will recognize him for who he is and welcome him. And he will bring God's rule. We see this in this theme throughout. We see this theme throughout the Psalms because it was composed, put together, used in the exile. Their city had been destroyed, their people scattered, but yet there is this constant hope for return, for salvation, for restoration. So, what does that look like for us? It means that we are going to have times of sorrow and difficulty and trial, and we don't need to pretend that that's not the case. We don't need to put on a happy face. We can be honest about that. But at the same time, we also, as the scriptures say, we don't grieve like the rest of the world. We, we, there's a different element because we have hope. We know how the story ends. We have hope in the midst of sorrow. So what am I doing? I'm meditating on God's word. I'm thinking about it in light of Jesus and who he is and what that means for us. And the other thing that I see so often in the Psalms is the psalmist keep pushing through until the answer comes. Sometimes when we're in the midst of the depths of sorrow and discouragement, there's a temptation to think that we will always feel that way, that we will never see a light at the end of the tunnel. It is not a train coming towards us. There's the thought that it is always going to be like this. Or maybe our deepest, darkest thoughts, fears are actually going to come true. But what I see over and over again in the Psalms is the psalmist expressing authentically what they're feeling and thinking. But they keep pressing through until they get some kind of breakthrough. We actually looked at an example of this in Psalm 73. I'll remind you of it. It starts with that affirmation because he's writing it. The, the author is writing it at the end of this process. So he says, I'm going to tell you where I ended up. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Serving God pays off. It's the right thing to do. God is a good God. That's the conclusion I came to. But it wasn't an easy conclusion, and it wasn't a smooth sailing journey. Verse 2. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. What's he saying there? I, I almost lost my faith over this. What, what, what did he see? For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. The phrase that stood out to me when I shared with you at that time was, it literally says, I saw the shalom of the wicked, the wholeness, the peace, the serenity of those who were far from God. And that shook him. And he envied the proud when he saw them prosper 
despite their wickedness. Now, at the end of that psalm, it comes back around to affirming God's goodness. But there was a process that they went to, that they went through. There's authenticity, authenticity. There's being real with God. But there's also keep pressing through, keep leaning in until you get to that point where you have hope and you have some kind of answer. And I think that gives me encouragement that I'm not always going to feel this way. I'm not always going to be experiencing this. There is hope. The things that I believe, the things that I've embraced are true, and I will see that come to pass. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter talked about the same kind of thing. He says to a people who are being persecuted, who are going through difficulty, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though right now you must endure many trials for a little while. And what does he say? That this, there's, there's a redemptive process going on here. There's purpose in your difficulty. goes on to say, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. The reason that you're going through difficulty, the reason that you're having these challenges is not because God is trying to destroy your faith. He's trying to purify it and strengthen it. He's going to, to prove its genuineness. So those are just a couple of the ways that as I look at the Psalms and reflect on them, meditate on them, turn them over, apply them to what I see in Jesus' teaching and what it means to follow Jesus, that's how I get to these conclusions. And we can use the Psalms and the whole of Scripture to be doing the same kind of thing. So that's what I'm going to give you an opportunity to do. Today, we've been talking about the idea of blessing. We see throughout the Psalms, but especially in Psalm 1 and 2, that it's meditating on God's word and surrendering to God's son that are twin pillars of a blessed life. So what would it look like for you to embrace that truth even more, to apply that truth in your life? What would it look like to do something to integrate God's word and God's son a little bit more intensely, a little bit more consistently, a little bit more authentically in your life. Well, the first thing that I think of is that following, following Jesus starts with following Jesus. To, to say, I'm going to surrender to God's son. I'm going to acknowledge his authority over me and that's why we are always every week encouraging you if you don't know where you stand with the lord if you have never if you can't point to a particular time and place where you decided to surrender your life to christ that now is the time to do that when you say yes to jesus you're saying yes to the forgiveness that he purchased for you on the cross you're also saying yes to his lordship or leadership his kingship in your life Psalm 2 says that that's, that's the path to blessing. You run to refuge to the king, and that's with a starting point. And so I will I'll always encourage you to do that. I also put down just a couple of other practical steps, and these won't be on screen, but they are. there's a place for them in your notes today. 
if we believe that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life, well, what does that look like to be meditating on God's word and integrating surrender to God's son in your life? You've got to be got to be in God's word. So I'm constantly uh, reminding you about the life journaling process. We have those life journals back there. I know some of you that's a part of your uh, regular devotional life. Some of you have other devotions. Maybe some of you haven't established that habit. So here is my, here is my, um, the, the number one most effective thing that I have found for being consistently getting into God's word, starting my day with that. And that is to set a trigger. If you're taking notes, to set a trigger. What's a trigger? It's something that launches something else. So for example, when I get up in the morning, sometimes my trigger has been my computer. I won't turn on my computer before I've had my devotional time. For some, sometimes it's breakfast. If you couldn't eat until you've been in God's word, most likely you're going to be in God's word that morning, right? Because you set that as a trigger. You tie something that you're always going to do with something that you would like to do. That's a trigger. So that's one way that you can do that. The other thing I would suggest, and this really helps with the meditation process, you've heard me say it before, write something. Write something. As you write out your thoughts, it doesn't have to be pages, it doesn't have to be paragraphs, but if you just write something, sometimes it might be a list of gratitude, sometimes it's just what I, re what I read today and how I'm, I'm going to apply that to my life, but writing something, there's something about writing it out that helps it to stick and clarifies your thoughts. It's a part, uh, it's a very helpful and effective part of the meditation process. And then lastly, I think about watching my input, inputs. What are the things that you have regularly coming into your life? If you go to church an hour a week and you spend, you know, 5, 15, 20 minutes reading God's word, then that's, that's pretty good. You're probably doing more than most. But if the radio is constantly on, music is constantly going, cable TV is constantly on, you're being discipled by your inputs. And if the inputs are overwhelmingly something else, that's what you're being discipled by, and I wouldn't be surprised if that flows into how you live your life. So watching our inputs. How can you make sure that your primary inputs, your most powerful inputs, are things that are going to help you? Listening to the right podcast, helpful podcast, listening to God's word, making sure that you do show up on Sundays, making sure that you're uh, checking in with your brothers and sisters. Just what are the inputs in your life and how do they compare to the other inputs in your life? All of us probably can figure out a way to do a little something more to integrate God's word in our lives and then to surrender. Just practically speaking, you can know a lot and still not experience the benefit of that if you don't apply it and live it out. And so every Sunday,
what I'm encouraging myself and us to do is to, when we walk out of that door, to live a surrendered life. The, Jesus is the boss. He gets to call the shots. My life is to be leveraged for him and his purposes. Surrender to God's son, meditating on God's word. That is the path to a blessed life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we discuss this, as we talk it out, as we walk out and live our lives, that you would help us to keep your word and your son front and center in our lives. Lord, may your Holy Spirit fill us and be the decisive influence in our lives. May we encourage one another, build one another up. May we fill our minds and hearts with your word. And I pray, Lord, that as a result, that you would be able to bless us more, that we would live a truly blessed life, what it means to be blessed in your eyes, to know you and to know your son, and help us to be effective, winsome, bold representatives, ambassadors for you in our world this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.